All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus 7, you can find that on page 48, the blue pew Bible. You can follow along, sorry, 49. We're moving right along in this book. So, have you ever heard someone say, maybe somebody who's not a believer, um, or maybe at one point in your life you found yourself saying this, um, I, I just wish God would give me a sign. Oftentimes, somebody might reference a story in the Bible where God reveals himself in this powerful way, like oftentimes we've been seeing in Exodus already, and they say, now if he just did that, then why can't he just do this now? Because if he did that now, I would believe. I just need a sign. Like if God, if you're real, just reveal yourself to me. Or maybe you'd be thinking, you know, it'd be a lot easier to evangelize if God was still doing these signs that he was doing in the Bible. Why wouldn't God just keep doing these things over and over again? It would be undeniable. It would lead to revival. Maybe you are a believer and you're not necessarily looking for a sign in order to believe, but you're looking for a sign as to what to do in a very specific situation God, should I take this job? Should I move to this place? Should I uproot my family or my spouse and move across the country? Should I stay with this person I'm dating right now? Should we keep going or should I just call it quits? And in a sense, in the Christian life, there's very much a sense of wanting to be in communion with the Holy Spirit to see where God is leading, what God seems to be saying, what God seems to be affirming in you, that that's a good thing. But we can have this arrogance about us, can't we? Where we can say, God, just just show me. Just give me a sign. Well, in our chapter this morning in Exodus, what we're going to see pretty clearly, I think, is that the inability to believe in God or the inability to trust in God is not due to a lack of signs. But it's due to a lack of faith. If you've been with us recently, chapter 5, we went through that, and it ended with Moses asking the question, why? God, why would you send me here? Why are your people still suffering? And God answered Moses last week we saw in chapter 6. He answered with, I am the Lord. Moses, trust me. I am faithful to keep my promises. I am in control. And so Moses hears that, and at the very end of chapter 6, he kind of says, okay, you told me why. But how? How now will this happen? And so now chapter 7, we get to see how is it God will do what he's promised to do. So we're going to walk through this chapter this morning. We're going to start with the first seven verses of chapter 7 that you can follow along as I read. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, 
when they spoke to Pharaoh. If chapter 6 really highlighted God's promises, chapter 7 is going to highlight his power, God's power. And this morning we're going to specifically see God's power flex over three enemies. Number one, God and Pharaoh. God and Pharaoh. So Moses, understandably, wants to know how this immovable force in Pharaoh will ever be persuaded to release all 1.5 million of the Hebrew people out from slavery. And so we understand his doubt. The most powerful man in the world is being told to let these people go, his primary workforce, and get nothing in return. And Moses and Aaron already went in with all their boldness, and they said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. So, God, how in the world will this happen? And God says, here's how. I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother will be your prophet. What's interesting about this verse is that nearly all of your English translations have the word like in verse 1. You will be like God. But the original Hebrew, the word like, is not there. The literal translation is, see Moses, I have made you God to Pharaoh. And English translations um, added the word like to avoid any sense of confusion that Moses maybe took on divine status at this point, that he did not literally become God, but in Pharaoh's eyes, he is a now direct representation of God. And here's why that matters. Because in ancient Egyptian culture, Pharaoh saw himself as a god. Upon taking the throne, you take on divine, godly status. It's a polytheistic culture, so he is one god amongst many, but Pharaoh becomes a god. And if Pharaoh's claiming to be a god, then it matters if in his eyes, now Moses is standing there as a god. So now he's going to have to deal with him. Now he can't just shoo him away. Now he's, gonna have to, now he's got a fellow god in front of him. He can't just brush him off. And his brother Aaron is there to speak on his behalf as a prophet because every god has a prophet. Pharaoh had his men who would speak in his decrees on his behalf to the nation of Egypt. And now this man, this Moses, this god has his own prophet who is speaking on his behalf. And so you see what God is doing. He's saying, I am matching Pharaoh at his own game and I'm going to overpower him with it. And with the signs and wonders that God is about to unleash through Moses... It will show that in this relationship, Moses is the more powerful God, so to speak. And then we see this reoccurring line repeated in verse 3, when God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and this will lead to the acts of judgment because I am the one hardening his heart. It's the second time we've seen it in Exodus it won't be the last time. It will say it 20 times throughout. In fact, a hardened heart is the name of this sermon because we're going to see it as the common thread throughout all of chapter 7. Moses is dealing with a man with a hardened heart. And it's God's great power against a hardened heart. Sometimes we read it like this in verse 4, where God's saying, I'm doing this. I'm hardening his heart. Elsewhere, we will see Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And then still other times, we'll just see in general, his heart is hardened without any specification as to who is doing the one hardening. And in doing so, 
And if you've been here, you're going to go, here he goes again. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That we just see it over and over again. It's the biblical truth that I call a clear mystery. The relationship of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the Bible is clear mystery. And if the reason why I bring it up often is because we see it in our Bibles everywhere. Every book that we're going through, we see this tension brought up. That God is sovereign over every aspect of his creation, include the hardening of people's hearts. And mankind is responsible for their decision in rejecting God and hardening their own hearts. Both are true. In the Bible, one never cancels out the other. And so it's mysterious, and yet again, as we see it plainly in front of us, it is very clear Now, I'm not saying clear means easy to understand. Even our guy, Moses, is struggling with this, isn't he? Consider the dialogue he's having with God. God says, Moses, go say this to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, but wait a minute. No, his his heart is hardened. He won't listen to me. And God's saying, I know. I hardened it. He won't listen to you. Now go. And Moses is like, wait, what? What? What is happening with that? Like we read that from our, again, limiting understanding. We can understand Moses just struggling with this. It's a clear mystery. But just because it's clear doesn't mean it's not mysterious. And just because it's mysterious doesn't mean it's not clear. It's both. And so I have talked about the theological meaning of that and observation of that in the Bible of divine sovereignty versus man's responsibility. But what I want to share this morning is something a little bit different. A comforting implication of this truth for the people of God. What's comforting about this for us? Well, God is telling Moses, you do not need to worry about the result of how Pharaoh reacts. That's not on you. I'm not asking you to change Pharaoh's mind. I'm asking you to be faithful in obeying my word. So you speak all that I command you. You be my representative, and then you trust the rest to me. That's a comforting truth. That Moses, you're in charge of faithfulness. You be faithful to this. You're not in in charge of what happens after. You're not in charge of fruitfulness. And I find this extremely comforting for the people of God when we are called to live out the Christian life, when we're called to make God's name known to an unbelieving world, that it is not our job to save anyone. God never asked us to do that. God has never asked you to go save someone. And the reason why he has never asked that of you is because that we don't have the power to. That's a weight that God never called us to carry, and it's a weight I think a lot of us do carry. That those around us who really want to believe, we carry that burden that it's on us. But hear me, and I say, again, this should be comforting to us, even if it doesn't seem like it at first. Um, Parents, you can't save your kids. Kids, you can't save your parents. We can't save our neighbors. We can't save our politicians. We can't save anyone. God can But what we can do and what we are called to do, like Moses, is being faithful in proclaiming the gospel. Being faithful in proclaiming truth about God. Be faithful in living a life that reflects your belief in the gospel. 
And, and that's really important, right? God's sovereignty does not make us fatalists. You know what I mean? We're like, well, if God's just going to do it, whether or not like, we participate or not, then why do anything? Like, this is not an excuse to be lazy. Right? Like, God tells us very clearly to proclaim the promises of God, to be faithful in making Christ known, to be clear in the warnings of what happens to those who don't follow God. Because his design is to use evangelism and prayer. You know why we make Christ known? You know why we pray for people to believe? Because the Bible tells us to. And it's God's design, but it is God who changes hearts. God will use your evangelism. God will use your prayer, but ultimately it is God's work. And something I say as often as, as I can to myself and to my, our staff when we're gathering each week who are just immersed, blood, sweat, and tears in this ministry, is God, help us be faithful. Help us just be faithful, hand to the plow, day after day, week after week, year after year. Let's just be faithful, and let's trust the fruitfulness to you. You will do with it what you will want to do. And we will pray for it. We want to see fruit, but ultimately, we're just going to be faithful. And you do what you want to do with it. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So be ambassadors. Don't shy away from imploring those who are hardened against Christ, who are worshiping a counterfeit God to repent and to believe. But then don't carry the responsibility as to how they react. This is where it's a comforting truth for God's people that he is sovereign over everybody's heart and we can call people to that same freedom. And then verse five, God gives us a little glimpse as to why he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. You're like, why would you do that? You want your people to go, but then you're hardening his heart. Like, I just don't understand. Verse five gives us a little glimpse. He says, so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against them. Without these acts of judgment that we know are coming in the, later in this chapter and in following chapters, the Egyptians would never bear witness to the power of God if Pharaoh just let the people go. And so God's going to reveal himself in this way, not just to Pharaoh now, but to a whole nation that they will see clearly who is the Lord. So nobody will be without excuse. And Moses and Aaron, to their credit, they've had a rough run this first few chapters of Exodus of trusting in and believing God's word. But now we're told that they do exactly as the Lord commanded them. That they were faithful now in speaking the words of God. And seemingly, randomly, we're told, Moses, 80 years old. Aaron, 83 years old when they spoke this. You know, Moses lived to be, he was 120. So even if you try and scale it to what we would consider today, he's, 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 he's already a senior citizen, right? Like he, he's already maybe in his mid-60s comparable to life stage and life expectancy today. But the point being, and the reason why I think this was included here, is to show that it is never too late to be used by God in a powerful way. And I wonder if you find yourself constantly battling discouragement in the Christian life, discouragement of regrets of how much time you've wasted. If you lament that you don't feel like you have that much time left 
or your good years of being used by God are behind you. This is a young man's game and I'm past it. Let me encourage you through Exodus 7 that God can and will use you to further his kingdom if you choose to be faithful. And you don't need some special gift set. You just need to be willing and faithful. D.L. Moody has a great quote regarding this verse. I have it up on the screen. He says, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody. 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody. And 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. Be encouraged. Let's keep going. Exodus 7, verses 8 to 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it might, may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. First, we see God's power flex over Pharaoh. Now, we see God and the magicians. And we begin to notice here that these verses is not merely a battle between flesh and blood. That there's a physical tug of war, yes, between Moses and Pharaoh, but there is a spiritual battle happening here. A very real spiritual battle here between God and the forces of evil. And, and, and kind of the, the shift is these intermediaries known as the magicians. And as we'll see in a bit, God will cast 10 plagues upon Egypt. We'll see the first one today. But there's actually 11 miracles. This first one is like the prologue to the plagues. This miracle with the snake and the staff. And it's not considered a plague as we know it today because the plagues were nationwide. They were seen by all, experienced by all. But this is just in the eyesight of a few. Just Pharaoh and some of his closest advisors and magicians. But it's a sign. Pharaoh just demanded a sign. You show me a sign and I'll believe you. A wonder, a miracle. Next week, we're going to look at several of the plagues across chapters 8 and 9. And I'm going to spend more time next week talking about miracles. Okay, Like, like what is a miracle? It's much harder to define biblically than you might think. And how should we think about miracles today? So that's next week. But here we have Pharaoh saying, prove it. Prove it that you are God, Moses. I haven't seen anything special out of you yet. Just a lot of words, a lot of chatter. Show me something. So Moses gives a head nod to his brother Aaron. Aaron throws his staff on the ground. We don't know if this is the same staff Moses had in the desert or if now Aaron's staff also is able to do this. But either way, it turns once again into a snake, into a serpent. Right in front of Pharaoh's eyes. There's your sign, Pharaoh. This wooden stick in my hand on the ground, now a snake. This is not a random miracle. 
A snake had extreme importance within the Egyptian culture. It was a symbol of power. It was featured on the Pharaoh's royal headdress. The cobra snake, this is most likely what Aaron's staff turned into. Highly venomous, highly dangerous, prolific throughout this region of the world. And the ancient cultures feared the snake, which led to the worship of it. And here's where we begin to see the spiritual forces that play. You see, Satan rules by fear. Satan gains power through fear. He forms counterfeit gods that are often worshipped out of fear. Isn't it true that you begin to worship what you fear most? It's no coincidence that Satan's first manifestation in the Bible in Genesis 3 was a serpent. And ancient manuscripts in Egypt explicitly state that when a new pharaoh ascended the throne, he would chant to the serpent God. And he would put on this royal headdress that has the snake on it. And he would chant, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. He was worshiping a counterfeit God. And we hear that today, 2020 in New Jersey, we go, it's a little weird. It's a little out there. Worship a snake. But the reality is, Satan is as active today in diverting people's worship from God to something else as he was in 2000 BC, Egypt. It just looks a little different, but the motive, the design, the desire is the same. And Pharaoh sees this miracle, and he sees this sign, and he calls in his crew. Magicians who come in with their staffs, behold, and through their secret arts, we're told, they do the same thing. Staffs to snakes. So we have, there's a couple things here that could have happened, right? It's possible secret arts means deceptive work. They're magicians. This is some form of magic. They give the appearance of their staff turning to snakes. Now you see it, now you don't. But honestly, I don't think the text lends itself to that reason. I think it lends itself to say they really did mimic this miracle, that their staffs turned into snakes, which would tell us that while counterfeit gods are fake, Satan is very real. He is not a figment of our imagination. He is real. He has power. He hates God and would do anything that would turn people away from God including working through these magicians to turn their serpent, their staff, into snakes. So I honestly just don't struggle that much with the fact that these magicians seemed to mimic this miracle. That in some way Satan is working through them or directing them. But here are two major takeaways from that point. One, Satan can only mimic, he can never create. He has power but his power is not eye to eye with God's power. It's not God and Satan and there's an epic battle and we don't know who wins. He can imitate, but he's not an innovator. Satan is a knockoff artist at best. And he is powerless against God's power. And we see that right away because Aaron's snake swallow up their snakes immediately. So Satan has power, but his power is leashed. 
God has power, and his power is unleashed, and there is no competition. And yet, Satan accomplishes what he wanted in Pharaoh. Verse 13, sees this happen before his eyes. God, give me a sign. Here's your sign. Still, heart was hardened. Verse 13, he sees it. He chooses to not listen, to not submit to the Lord's authority, And this is clear picture that even when people get the sign they demand, it does not mean it will change their hearts. Perhaps you've said this yourself at some point or someone close to you. Again, from the introduction, God, just give me a sign. If I saw this, I would believe. If they did get the sign that they were asking for, they would still find a way to explain it away and not believe. If I saw the burning bush, if I saw a stick turn to snake, if I heard a voice or I saw a message in the sky, I will believe. But it's not true. Often people, when people demand signs, they're using it as a justification as to what they won't believe. Because anyone who has a hardened heart, they're not just saying no to God, they're saying yes to something else. No one's a blank slate. No one just says no to God. They say no to God because their yes is bound up with another God. Because there's no way you can live without worshiping something. Everybody has a God. There's just a different name for it. Everyone's bound to something, even if that God is themselves. And the reality is that's often not an honest request. Lord, show me a sign. But a statement to justify why they won't believe. We see God and Pharaoh, God and the magicians. Now let's read the rest of the chapter. We get into the first plague. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far... You have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. For they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Third and last this morning, we see God and false gods. 
the power struggle of God and false gods. These verses commence the famous ten plagues, the ten acts of power that all of Egypt will see as a result of Pharaoh's hardened heart. Up to now in Exodus, we've seen God's power is unmatched, but now for several chapters, we will see his power unleashed. And this pattern of God's power and Pharaoh's hardened heart, blinded by the power of Satan, will take center stage from here until the end of chapter 12, when Pharaoh will finally send the people out of his land. And again, next week, we're going to dig deeper into the meaning of plagues and miracles. But for this morning, suffice it to say that these are not random acts of judgment by any means. This is not God just picking judgments out of a hat. Each plague, just like the miracle of the snakes we just saw, is a direct assault on the false gods of Egypt. Egypt is a polytheistic culture. They have many gods And God will mow them down, one by one. And so it's interesting that the plague, and a plague, is not an attack on the Egyptian people. It's an attack on the Egyptian gods. And it begins with the Nile River. And the reason is because the Nile meant everything to Egypt. From from just a purely practical standpoint, from a materialistic standpoint, Egypt has always been a power in the ancient world because of the Nile River. Because it's a major source of water and food, a major source of transportation, of economic interests. It was a strong spiritual stronghold because of the god of the Nile was one of the most prominent ones in Egypt. There were several gods of the Nile, but the most prominent one is Hapi, H-A-P-I, the god of the flood. The annual flooding of the Nile was a good thing. You think flood, I think flood, we think bad thing. In Egypt, the flood annually was needed. It was a good thing because each year the river would overflow its banks and then when the rivers, when the waters receded, it left this really fertile soil that would produce an abundance of crops. Like it did the work for them. And they had this major economic hub and its access to transportation and it provided them the means and the resources to be a powerful ancient kingdom. This is why some commentators think that Pharaoh went down to the river each and every morning, as we read in verse 15. God said, go to Pharaoh as he's going down to the river because he was going to pay homage to Hapi and the other gods. You got to keep them happy, don't you? Isn't that the way most people outside of Christianity view gods? Just do enough to keep them happy. Worship enough to keep them happy. Or else things are going to get in trouble for you. So Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, goes to the river each and every morning. And so the first plague, God unleashes his power where Egypt is going to feel it most. The river turns to blood. I mentioned this earlier in the series, but I don't think it's any coincidence that this is the first plague. Considering the previous Pharaoh... And the previous regime who made the nationwide mandate to throw every newborn baby boy of the Hebrew people into the Nile River. Remember that? He gave that authority to every Egyptian, every normal citizen, so to speak. You see a newborn baby Hebrew boy, throw him in the Nile. And this is God's way of saying, you want blood in the Nile, Pharaoh? I'll give you blood in the Nile. And the fish die. No one can drink. 
And there's blood throughout all the kingdom and their canals and their ponds and their pools of water, even the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone that they kept in their homes to wash their false idols every morning, that they were forced to wash them in blood. How's that for a picture? You know, we don't get any insight into how the people responded to this. I imagine there was widespread panic, distress, People were buying all the toilet paper. I don't know. Like, what were they all doing in ancient Egypt when the Nile turned to blood? I don't see how there couldn't just be widespread panic. Like, are you kidding me? And it's interesting times to study the plagues, isn't it? That panic happens when false gods get exposed. Panic happens when a society realizes they don't have near the amount of control they thought they did. And just like the miracle of snakes, we're told in verse 22 that Pharaoh's magicians did, quote, the same thing with the first plague, implying that they too turned water into blood. Now I got some questions. How did they find water to turn to blood when all the water had already turned to blood? But this, once again, doesn't show Pharaoh's power It exposes Satan's limited power to challenge God's true power. Think about this. If the magicians were really good, they would have turned that blood back into water. The fact that they just did the same thing, they are actually participating in furthering God's glory and God's power. Thank you very much, magicians. I already did that. And it exposes. It exposes false gods. It exposes Satan that he is, at best, a knockoff artist, a counterfeiter, not an innovator. And nonetheless, chapter 7 ends with the common refrain Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. We just saw a lot happen in chapter 7. Moses is like a god to him. He sees a staff turn into a snake and swallow up all the other snakes. He sees his whole river turn to blood. And yet, despite seeing it all, he turns around, he goes inside, and his heart is still hardened. But in this chapter, we see God is God. Pharaoh is not. God is God. The magicians are not. God is God. And the false gods are not. And as we apply this to us today, we need to affirm that every generation in every place will have counterfeit gods. False gods that Satan uses to promise and provide meaning, to provide comfort, to provide fulfillment, to make you fear them so that you worship them. And they always overpromise and underdeliver. And we could go through the list in our small groups. If you're in the discussion, uh, in a small group, we go through these discussions of the sermon each week. We'll see what are our false gods today, like money and power and things that we worship because we really fear them at their core. You know how you can tell the difference between a false god and a real one? This is not an intro to a joke, all right? But the difference between a false god and a real one, false gods demand you come to them. The one true God comes to you. False gods require works. The one true God gives grace. 
false gods enslave and put a weight on your back. The real God frees you. And the worship of false gods is a result of a hardened heart. And there's no formula to melt a hardened heart. It's God's grace. God's grace to reveal himself to you. God's grace to come to you to which you can respond by turning from your false gods and trusting in him. So do we need a sign today? Do we need a new sign from God to start something anew? Should we be asking for that, pleading for that? God, just give us something like you gave Moses, like you gave Pharaoh. The answer is no. And the reason is in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. I think it will be on the screen. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Exodus, Moses was a man who appeared to be the direct representation of God. But now in Jesus, God has revealed his son who truly is God. And this is the sign that all signs in the Bible prior to point to. The ultimate sign given to us is Jesus and the resurrection. All of Christianity, all of belief boils down to what do you believe about Jesus and the resurrection? And if you believe in the resurrection then you believe Jesus is who he said he was. The God-man, the one who frees and restores enslaved people, the God who comes to us, who melts hardened hearts, uncovers our eyes, and gives us the gift of faith. The Lord gave signs to Egypt, and the Lord gave us his son, so that all would know that he is the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity of your word. We thank you for every passage that points to the gift of your son in Jesus Christ, that every passage is relevant for us because we do live in a fallen world. We are surrounded by angst. We are still desiring your power, Lord. But I pray that we might reflect on the power that sent your son, the power that broke death and sin on the cross, the power that was made manifest by the resurrection. And Father, I just pray that you would implore us, anybody here who does not believe, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would show yourself to be the one true God who comes to them, Lord, to free them from the weight of having to be better, do better, serve and worship another God. And Father, we rest in the truth that you proclaim in your word, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Amen.